Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk, featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within London's West End. Today's episode is about the death of Marianne Moriarty, a good, decent and hard-working mother of eight children, who struggled to protect her family whilst trapped in an abusive relationship with a violent, angry drunk. And with no way of escape, her pain was only ended by the blade of an axe. Murder Mile is researched using original sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatisation of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 71, The Last Days of Marianne Moriarty. Today, I'm standing on Drury Lane, WC2, two streets south of the lonely spinster Daisy Edith Wallace, one street east of the brutal baker Alexander Moyer, two streets northwest of the murder or suicide of Italian banker Roberto Calvi, and just 50 feet from the home of Carl Taylor, the little-known first date killer. Coming soon to Murder Mile. This is the Wild Street Estate, 13 six-storey sandstone buildings covering a whole city block from Drury Lane to Wild Street to Kemble Street. And as one of the early Peabody estates, built in 1881 by philanthropist George Peabody to provide clean and safe inner-city housing for the city's poorest in the Victorian era, even today it still houses hundreds of families. Hidden in the really shitty part of Covent Garden, Far from the surly servers, serving lukewarm lattes for £8. The Opera House, where poncy uptight types feel cultured having watched a fat woman warble. And the overhyped street performers, who have one hour to fill and just two tricks to perform, so most of their act is about making you clap. With no sun, no flowers and no joy. Just long lines of monstrously drab flat-fronted high-rises, this side of Drury Lane is a real eyesore. Oddly, the Peabody estate is old and interesting, as before the slum clearances of 1875, somewhere amongst what was once a dark and dirty rabbit's warren of leaky lodging houses, cowsheds and cesspits, stood 13 Granby Place. And although it has long since been demolished, The area still hangs with an unpleasant sense of dread, terror and death. As it was here, on Saturday the 7th of December 1872, having suffered yet another brutal beating at the hands of her drunk and abusive husband, that armed with an axe, the cruel and tragic life of Marianne Moriarty, 
came to an end. In 1831, Mary Ann Donovan, known as Anne, was born near the town of Kilmallock, County Limerick, in the southwest of the Republic of Ireland, as the third eldest daughter of 13 siblings. Like many peasants who lived off the land, they were illiterate and poor, eking out a hand-to-mouth existence, with peat moss on the fire, animal fur for clothes, and eating only what they could grow, surviving in the rugged windswept wilds with a dearth of sunlight and a sodden boggy soil on a small holding barely big enough to feed their family and few animals. They lived off root crops like potatoes. In 1845, as an infestation of potato blight swept across Ireland, infecting every farm and family, the Great Famine saw four years of mass starvation, disease and emigration which killed over one million people, an eighth of the country's population, and forced another million to flee. After two years of hardship, the decimated and emaciated Donovan family had emigrated to England. But London in the late 1840s was a far cry from the farmlands of Limerick. With hard stone streets, a festering river of feces, the acrid air thick with choking industrial fumes, and the water so polluted that one cholera outbreak would soon wipe out a sixth of Soho in a single week. So living in a leaky flea-infested lodging house with five other families, the Donovans had survived starvation, but only just. Having moved to London, although illiterate and unskilled, Marianne made the best of her new life. By all accounts, Marianne was a good Catholic woman, with solid morals, strong maternal instincts, and a natural warmth which endeared her to others. In the spring of 1851, 20-year-old Marianne Donovan married 23-year-old Daniel Moriarty. A stocky, stout, and thick-set Irish bricklayer, with arms like tree trunks, fists like prize hams, and a nose like a squash spud, having broken it in too many fights. And although a fan of drink, he worked hard. During those first few years, married life was good, but hard. As being Irish, poor, and reliant on his wage, they moved from job to job and place to place. And although Mr. and Mrs. Moriarty tried to raise a family, being little and weak, the first two babies of their brood failed to survive their first year. But being devout Catholics, the couple kept their faith, and soon enough, eight children followed. In 1871, after 20 years of marriage, Daniel and Marianne were living at number three Brown's Buildings, just off Drury Lane. And with their eldest, 17-year-old Mary in service as a maid. Squeezed into just two tiny rooms was their eldest son Danny, aged 14, John, aged 10, Edward, aged 8, William, aged 5, and with a sixth on the way, with Mary Ann as a full-time mother. They struggled, but survived. She adored being a mum, but married life was never bliss as with her sweet smile broken by smashed teeth, her soft flesh mottled by purple welts, and her greeny-blue eyes red raw and puffy from years of tears, Marianne lived in fear. But before the year was out, the life of Marianne Moriarty would be over, and all because of her violent husband, his addiction to drink, and an axe. By the summer of 1872, the Moriarty family had moved to 13 Granby Place. Two tiny damp rooms on the second floor of a leaky tumble-down house, squeezed in a thin, unlit alley, hidden amongst a cramped, chaotic mess of slum lodgings, cowsheds, coal yards and slaughterhouses. 
with thousands of people all sharing an airless rat-infested courtyard for washing, cooking, bathing and shitting. Scraping by on a meagre wage, Marianne made the best of a dire situation. For her beloved family, there was always fresh straw on the two beds they shared, hot food for their rumbling bellies, and being devoid of trees, she kept the log fire burning by chopping up old bits of discarded wood with an axe. But as hard as she tried, they never had enough, as Daniel always blew his wages on drink. Daniel Moriarty was a drunken, loutish brute. After three decades of chronic bruising, his fierce face was a bloated red mess. His gut was like a flatulent balloon. His glassy, scowling eyes were vacant. And with his hard, hairy knuckles, all bruised and broken, although he had a family to feed, always being drunk, he never had a kind word to say, a penny to spare, or new clothes to warm his ragged family. Not only was Daniel a cruel husband, a bad father, and a selfish drunk, he was also a violent criminal. In 1867, five years earlier, Daniel violently robbed an elderly couple in Covent Garden, beating them black and blue with his fists, breaking the man's jaw, and all for the sake of a few pennies. Sentenced to seven years in Millbank Prison, Mary Ann was left with no income, five kids to fend for, and a sixth on the way. But being resilient, with a sympathetic landlord, George Beals, having taken pity on the good woman's plight, she moved her family to cheaper lodgings at 13 Granby Place. Daniel served only three years in prison. He was placed on bail and returned to his wife, his kids, his job and his drink. In April 1872, Daniel was sentenced to one month's hard labour for what the court termed as ill-treating his wife. Risking her own life, Mary Ann filed a complaint against her husband at Bow Street Police Station, as in one of his frequent drunken rages, the brute had rained down several heavy blows upon her, fracturing her eye socket, cracking three ribs and breaking two fingers. As shielding her children with her arms and back, she defended her newborn baby with her body. Daniel served one month in prison, and fueled by drink and resentment, again he returned home to his wife and kids. In June 1872, having boozed himself insensible at the Wheat Chief pub on Stanhope Street, as a serial womanizer and brothel botherer, at a little before tea time, Daniel came home and demanded that his wife and six hungry children wait outside in the street so that he could fuck the whore that he had paid for. In October 1872, at the Bull's Head pub on Veer Street, Daniel and his old pal John Sullivan had boozed himself into an incapable stupor. A fight sparked up, they were turfed out, and stumbled back to 13 Granby Place. Having forcibly ejected his family from their own home with a brusque, Woman, out! Daniel grabbed a candlestick, knocked his pal to the floor, and robbed him of 23 shillings. Tried at Bow Street Police Court, Mary Ann gave evidence against Daniel. As being a violent ex-convict, who had broken his bail terms. Facing a prison sentence of up to 10 years for robbery, this was Mary Ann's chance to escape. Only with the victim, his pal John Sullivan, having recanted his evidence, and later stating in court, I know nothing about it. I never saw the man. Daniel Moriarty walked free. On the bitter winter evening of Thursday the 21st of November 1872, with her eyes black and swollen like ripe avocados, her lopsided mouth a misshapen mess of broken teeth, and with seven of her starving children in tow, including a malnourished toddler on her hip and a newborn at her breast, with both of her parents dead 
and her siblings scattered far and wide. 40-year-old Mary Ann sought sanctuary at the Holborn City Road workhouse, having been kicked out onto the icy streets by her husband. Sadly, Mary Ann had become a familiar face of the workhouse, and although she was a neat and sober woman, who worked hard to earn a warm bed, dry clothes and hot food for her babies, as safe as the workhouse was, it wasn't home. Having stayed for nine days, she knew this was just a brief respite from the beatings, and being reliant on her husband, she begged him to take her back. On Tuesday the 3rd of December, Mary Ann returned to 13 Granby Place. Again, Daniel was drunk. Again, Daniel was angry. And again, Daniel beat her. As with two broken fingers, a sprained wrist, and the axe's blade blunt, as the darker nights drew in, the wood was gone, the fire was out, and his dinner was cold. Mary Ann could have filed another complaint at Bow Street Police Court, but she didn't. On Wednesday the 4th of December, having squandered the bulk of his weekly wage at the Weed Chief and stumbled home drunk, as the petrified family sat in silence, for fear of feeling the hard slap of his rough hand, finding fault in anything she did, Daniel's anger snapped. Being broken, bloodied and bruised, it was only after she had put her babies to bed, with a reassuring hug and a sweet kiss goodnight, that in private, she allowed herself to cry. Again, Mary Ann could have gone to the police, but she didn't. On Friday the 6th of December, one night before the murder, as Daniel and his pissed up pals necked back a few pots of ale at the weed sheaf, with the family famished, Mary Ann sent her son to beg his boozy father for money to buy bread. With a hard slap, seven-year-old William was sent back empty-handed. And yet, oddly, staying till closing time, Daniel splashed out on a half-gallon jug of beer to take home. Staggering past his starving family, Daniel stumbled upstairs with his pal John Kay and sunk several more beers. Gone midnight, with her kids unable to sleep, owing to the banging and raucous cheers, Mary Ann asked Daniel to come home. Seething at her impertinence, he snapped, Woman, out! But she didn't leave. Fuming at her insolence, he spat, Out! Now! Again, she didn't. But as his fast fist tightened, being too tired to give her the beating that he felt her cheek warranted, he hurled the half-full ceramic jug at her head. It smashed, split open a gash on her forehead, and soaked her ragged clothes in a pint of warm stale ale. Being wet and humiliated, Marianne left and went to bed. And although Daniel was too drunk to follow her, by the next morning, he would not have forgotten. The next day was Saturday the 7th of December, 1872. At 5.30am, Mary Ann rose her children. The oldest boys earned a half shilling a day as porters in Covent Garden. En route, Edward lugged back a sack of coals for the fire. William struggled to chop a wood with a badly blunted axe. And Mary Ann nursed her two babies while she busied herself with a never-ending series of chores. They all worked hard for the sake of the family, all except Daniel, who snored. That morning, as a demeaning part of her weekly routine, Mary Ann popped to see her sympathetic landlord, George Beals, to apologise for being late with the rent. He was a generous man, kind and compassionate. So had it not been for his big heart and the pleas of Mary Ann, the family would have been evicted weeks ago. But now, being seven weeks behind, they had to pay up now 
or the family was out. A bitter winter had begun, and as a Siberian wind blew down Drury Lane, it froze everything it touched, freezing the water pump shut, the wash house solid, the icy cobblestone slick, and dangling from the leaky roofs of Granby Place were lethally sharp shards of ice. Being denied a home, food and money, if they were drenched by the rain and frozen by the wind, she knew her youngest wouldn't last a day. Daniel had the money. She knew that, and for the sake of her children, she needed it now. But by the time she had returned home, his bed was empty, the purse was missing, and her husband was gone. Nursing a blinding hangover, as plumes of stinky sweaty steam rose off the wheezing bulk of Daniel Moriarty, his guts gurgled, his arse parped, and his gob burped, as with his heavy purse clinking with coins, he stumbled down Kemble Street and to quell his throbbing head, staggered into the nearest pub. And there he stayed all day, necking back pots of beer, chugging back shots of rum, and only moving on when the obnoxious boozer was booted out. Edward was nine years old, and William was only six, and yet having raised her children well, Mary Ann trusted her boys implicitly to look after her young ones while she went in search of Daniel. She was alone, afraid, and still black and blue from the beating she had received several nights before. By 2pm, Daniel was drunk again. Sat at the bar with his pals in the wheat sheaf, the stocky, stout and powerfully built bricklayer slugged back a pot of beer clutched in his big bruised fist and seeing his wife enter he scowled what Marianne pleaded you've given me no money today to which Daniel quipped no and I don't intend to give you any spitting ale in her face as he left although she shook as she stared at the seething brutal drunk who had beaten her almost every day of her married life with his selfishness once again risking the lives of her children, the hungry hole in her empty belly was replaced by a fire. And as a strong woman who had given birth eight times, Mary Ann Moriarty stood her ground, as she was angry, determined, and unwilling to back down. Shaming in public this bad dad and shitty husband in front of his cackling pals, Mary Ann shouted, is this how you intend to treat your wife and children, is it? Hammering home his faults, she let the whole bar know about the seven weeks' rent and their eight kids. Only he brushed off his wife's blather with a Mind your own business, woman. Don't interfere with mine. And ordered another pint. Only he couldn't. As having heard enough, and being absolutely disgusted at this man's behaviour, Patrick... The landlord of the Wheat Chief turfed Daniel out of the pub and ordered him home. Shortly afterwards, George Beals, their landlord, saw Mary Ann propping Daniel up as he stumbled home, spitting her name and swearing at his witch of a wife, as from his gurgling guts he spewed a steamy spray of hot sick onto the icy street. And with her face all filthy, looking as if she had fallen, as they disappeared into the darkness of Granby Place. He thought nothing more of it. As for them, this was normal. Moments later, their neighbour John Kay found Mary Ann slumped against the street door of 13 Granby Place. As with two broken fingers, a sprained wrist and three cracked ribs, this time she couldn't drag her spouse's 20 stone slab of flab up two flights of stairs. Hearing her babies crying, John Kay carried Daniel up to the room, popped him in an armchair and left for work. At roughly 2.30pm, Mary Ann arrived at Bow Street Police Station, her filthy face speckled with fresh bruises, a bloodied lip and a swollen cheek, as once again she made another statement to the police. At around 3pm, 
Marianne returned home. Daniel was drunk, furious and tense. Knowing where she had been, he seethed, You lying bitch, you've been to Bow Street, as usual. I'll give you cause to go there. As an ex-con who had broken his bail and faced an even harsher sentence, as Daniel grabbed Marianne's hair, he pulled her closer, and as she fought to shield her screaming babies with her body, tightly gripped in his battered fist, Daniel held the axe. In this kind of neighbourhood, where death was a daily event, violence was to be expected, and screams were commonplace, as the heavy axe fell, nobody took any notice of Marianne Moriarty. At 7pm, as John Kay entered the drab gloom of 13 Granby Place, the eerie silence was punctuated by stifled sniffles and muffled tears. And as he passed the second floor landing, he saw the Moriarty kids, the eldest comforting the youngest, too afraid to re-enter the room. With the boys safe, grabbing a candle, John lifted the latch and pushed open the stiff wooden door to the two-roomed lodging occupied by the Moriartys. Except for the flickering fire, the sitting room was dark, and as he approached, slumped in an armchair, he saw the black silhouette of a woman. Raising his candle, even by a shaky limited light, he saw that her silent face was an unsightly mess of welts, lumps, cuts and gashes. And with fear in his voice, he asked what he already knew to be true. Mrs. Moriarty, I'll be damned. If you ain't killed the man... Breathing rapidly, as the brilliant whites of her glistening eyes peep through a thick, crusty mask of dried blood, trembling with a mix of terror and euphoria, she stammered, Yes, I am the woman that done it. I had reason for doing it, and a good job too. As lying on the floor, partially sprawled across the blood-soaked bed, with his head wrapped in a bedsheet, was Daniel. The police arrived at 7.45pm, tending to the motionless corpse as Constable Firth pulled open the matted bedsheet. Its sticky layers slowly pried apart to reveal a bloody mess which was once a man's head. But now, like a pound of minced beef, it was split apart by six wounds made by an axe. After 21 years and eight children together, having endured an endless barrage of assaults, abuse, fear and broken bones, being failed by the legal system, ignored by society, and condemned by her faith to live a life in an unbreakable marriage with a violent womanizing thug. Desperate to protect her babies, having snatched the axe, Mary Ann had finally escaped her brutal drunken husband. Or so she thought. When red bubbles popped from the gaping holes of what was once his nose, as Daniel wasn't dead, but very much alive and still breathing, PC Firth hailed a cab and dashed him to the hospital on the Strand. Andrew Duncan, the surgeon at King's College, tended to his wounds, and with nine cuts, Six fractures, a sliced-up nose, a split eyelid and a partially severed ear. Although Marianne had hit him repeatedly about the head with an axe, being blunt, he ended up dazed but not dead. And oddly, with his pain lessened by the soporific excess of booze in his blood, his survival was described as miraculous. Admitted to hospital on the 7th of December 1872, having successfully had bone fragments removed from his brain. On the 11th of December 1872, he identified Mary Ann as his attacker. And although two days later, Daniel Moriarty was dead, Mary Ann was charged with murder.
On the 13th of January, 1873, Marianne was tried at the Old Bailey. She was found guilty of manslaughter by provocation and was sentenced to eight years penal servitude, which she served in Woking Prison. With both of their parents gone, being classed as adults, their eldest children, Mary and Danny, were safe. And although Edward died just a few years later, John and William lived long lives and died as old men. But the same could not be said for the toddler and the newborn. And upon her release, although she would live for another 19 years, as an unskilled, unmarried and penniless ex-convict, having escaped poverty, starvation, famine, alcoholism, abuse and assault, the last days of Marianne Moriarty were spent in the Woolwich Union Workhouse, where she died in 1901, alone and broken. Her beloved babies cruelly taken from her, having fought to protect them. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. For all minty-flavoured murky milers, there's more flabby gob dribble in the latest foie fest after the break. But before that, here's my recommended podcasts of the week. <sighs> I've been listening to a ton of true crime podcasts lately, but you know, there's just not enough conspiracy theories in it. What about international crime? But what about the psychological aspect? I mean, what were they thinking? Yeah, but who's talking about cults and even paranormal stuff? Hey, wait, that's us. It's Murder Blows. We're a podcast of four friends talking about the things we love the most. Join us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, anywhere that you get your podcasts every Monday morning. And if you haven't gotten enough of us yet, we are on Twitter at Murder Blows and Instagram at Murder Blows Cast. So come on, come hang out with us or listen to us every Monday. Thanks so much. Bye. Hi, we're the hosts of the Fresh Hell Podcast. I'm Annie in Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm Johanna in Vienna, Austria. Join us every Wednesday for a new terrible story. I focus mostly on cases in the U.S. and not just true crime like the terrifying axe murders on Smutty Nose Island, but also shocking stories like the New Jersey shark attacks of 1916. And I love to tell you about more obscure European cases. And let me tell you, Germany has produced more cannibals than one would think. Mm, so if you're a fan of true crime, but you also enjoy terrible stories of all sorts, give us a listen. We'll tell you everything you need to know and then some. Come find Fresh Hell Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Auf Wiedersehen. See you soon. A huge thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporter, who is Richard Fitzpatrick. I thank you, Richard. And a special thank you to George Nasursk, I hope I've pronounced that right, who sent a kind donation to keep the podcast alive via the donate button on the Murder Mile website. George, I thank you. Also, if you don't know, iTunes has finally created a true crime category, and your very own Murder Mile is rocketing up the ranks. Very exciting. But as always, we are battling against some really big shows many of whom are made by well-funded, professional radio and TV networks, who, even though some of their shows have less than 10 episodes, oddly, they always appear in the iTunes Top 10 charts and on the front page of all of your favourite podcast apps. Hmm, why is that? Well, I'll let you into a little secret. They pay for it, and they pay well. Sadly, small independent podcasts like Murder Mile can't afford to blow the money that we don't have on that kind of advertising. I wish we could, but there is a way that you can help, and it's free. If you love Murder Mile and want to keep the show alive, as the more listeners we get, the longer we can keep going. If you can give Murder Mile a review on iTunes and your favourite podcast app, that would really help and would be hugely appreciated. As always, if you want to see what the murder locations look like, every Thursday I upload a blog for each episode with a map, location videos, photos, etc. As always, there's a link in the show notes. 
Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ah, it's cracked my neck. Oh, wow, shouldn't turned. Ow, I knew that was going to happen. Oh, I can feel that happening. And then I turned my neck and it just went, oh dear, that hurt. Hey, everyone. Murder Mile again. Murder Mile, Extra Mile. Extra Mile, that's what we're on, isn't it? Extra Mile time. Oh, open windows. Oh, there we go. <coughs> oh, I had something in my throat during that. Right, Extra Mile time. I'm going to open some windows and then talk to you. I'm going to do that while I'm doing this. Oh, how are we all? We all good? We all happy? We all busy? Uh, all enjoying ourselves? Obviously, if, if you uh, work in teaching, you're on your uh, holiday and having a great time. If you are the rest of us, you're working hard. Uh, uh, must, be, must be nice to have uh, a nice big summer holiday. I would love that. I think we should all have that, don't you reckon? We should all work the same hours that teachers do. Not denigrating teachers, you all work very hard, but I think we should all have six to eight weeks off over summer and two weeks for Easter. That would be great. Although that would, that would be awful. Can you imagine that? Nothing would get done. We'd all, everything would be shut. Can you imagine that for eight weeks over summer, everything was shut. Maybe we should try it. Let's give it a go. Anyway, right, I'm just in the process. I'm just getting my tea bags. Oh, I don't know what these are. Are these PG? Oh, this is PG. Got a PG tea bag. Uh, PG tea bag, uh, some sugar gonna be done, some uh, powdered milk as always because it's summer. I did have milk before, but it went off, and I had a cheese goes off really fast. It goes all sweaty within a day. It's horrible. So have I put the gas on? Let me just check that I've just lit the gas. I hope I have. Yes, I've lit the gas. All oh, right. So I hope you're all well. I hope you're all enjoying yourselves. Uh, what have they got? Oh, listen to this. Look. Chunky Belgian chocolate shortbread. 
these are going to disappear very quick. Although I am going to have to go on a diet soon. Look at that, I'm like a panda. Panda with giant tits. Uh, <laughs> oh dear. So that was extra mile. That was Murder Mile. Hope you enjoyed that. That was a bit of an emotional one. Um, uh, I enjoyed the little references in there to, to Pete on the fires. Reminds me of my early days growing up in Ireland. Uh, the nice peat, peat logs. Always remember the smell of that. Putting the like, like here's nice having a little a little log fire. But back in Ireland, that was really nice. So you had all the logs, and they were made of peat moss. And when you put them on the fire, they were quite smoky. But there was a really really nice smell to them. Oh, I miss that smell. Ah, oh, reminds me of happy days in Ireland. I'm sure it wasn't from my parents. I'm sure it was. Uh, I'm sure it was a horrible time. But uh, for me, being young, it was quite. It was exciting and interesting and. Uh, Remember the uh, uh, going out on picnics, and I think there was a we'd make our own pizzas, and there'd be a special flour that they'd use. I don't know what it was, but uh, yeah, happy days, happy days. So uh, that was uh, where I might have still in the same place I was when uh, with the last week's episode, and I think the week before's episode. I'm not too sure. I can't remember. <coughs> and because uh, uh, this today, today, uh, I think. If you're listening to these episodes when they go out, I'm switching off lights at the moment. Uh, you would have just received the Roberto Troyan Troyan episode uh, as I'm recording this today. So uh, I'm a couple of episodes ahead. So you've got the Roberto Troyan, and then you'll have the abominable Mr. and Mrs. Cox. This is not a spoiler because that would be uh, a week before's episode. And then you have Roberto Calvi, which I'm yet to edit, uh, but I've recorded and written. And then you've got this one. And then what I'm hoping to do before I go away dog sitting for a week, I'm hoping to have written and recorded but not edited the next one, next week's episode, um, which is good. I've all, that, that was one from the archive, so I've already researched that one. That I think, and I think I remember sitting there and I've put everything in order anyway. So, but it's one of these interesting murder mystery ones, so uh, we'll see how that goes. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but I'm just trying to get as many done as possible. So th- this clears out my august and takes us into september and uh by the time i've written next week's episode that'll be the fifth one in this series of in this part of 10 what i'm doing now to make things easy for myself is doing um blocks of 10 because i can do 10 without getting too far behind and without knackering myself out so you do i'm going to start doing blocks of 10 which is what i'm doing and then it will be like two in the middle uh, either meander mile or extra mile or something and then we go into a block of uh, mini miles so that's good this is this is all to try and make sure that i can uh, keep the quality of the episodes high but without getting knackered out which is too easy to do i do that too easy so uh what am i saying okay yeah no i i'm watching my cup of tea brewing as well tea up tea o'clock cup of tea um I kind of found this story by mistake. I'd already kind of planned what this block of 10 was going to be. Uh, and then I was going through the Old Bailey archive. Uh, many, many of their old cases are, up until 1913, are uh, uh, have been digitised and transcribed, which is really useful. Um, so you can, go, you can go on to the Old Bailey archive. It's very interesting. And I was actually looking for something else. Um, I, I, I was looking for... Uh, a place that I couldn't find and I knew that if I it went on the old Bailey archive that if someone lives in that area that they would describe what streets are off which weirdly I had to do with this case as well uh, and I was going through the archive I was looking for um, uh, a location which was just off Drury Lane I was trying to find a building and then I saw woman kills husband with a hatchet in the head in bed and I was like sold I'm interested Teas up uh, that instantly caught my attention. Um, oh, I can't be a cup of tea. All the world's problems could be solved if everybody had tea. Totally believe that. Get everyone, get everyone in the room. Get all the leaders in the room. Sit them down. Give them a nice cup of tea. Maybe a biscuit. And then at the end of it, everyone's like, "Oh, everything's okay." Life is good. Oh, yeah, a cup of tea. Lovely, lovely, lovely. 
Uh, so yes, so uh, yeah, so I found that episode and it looked really good. Uh, although I was, this was only probably about two weeks ago, so I was already part way through this series, this part of the series already. I knew I needed to do the research quick. I knew it was kind of interesting enough that I could dive into it, but it was a small file and there were many details missing from the file because it was kind of just like uh this is uh, this is what the police said this is what marianne said uh her husband blah de blah de blah he hit, she hit him in the head he was still alive and then he died it was a bit of a vague case but i there was enough details in there the fact that she was you know she had eight children or six as he said um which is interesting so uh i thought it could, could be quite, uh, quite a nice interesting case another one about kind of uh poverty and abuse and things like that uh so i went through the old bailey file which was there um went through the there was uh, a bow street file which was at the national archives a lot of the, the files from the bow street police court are now they're not digitized but they're in the national archives uh, i had to do a lot more extra research into their back history which is a real nightmare because coming from ireland a lot of their information is kind of not with us so i had to find another way of doing that but i I think i did enough to cover what we needed to cover uh and then it was interesting kind of occasionally people would mention about that he had prior convictions and i was like that's interesting it's not in the old bailey file so what i did was i back checked through the old bailey files and there were other crimes that he'd committed uh and then there were news articles about about things that he'd done previously and i found uh details in parish records as well so that was really interesting so actually the although the the old bailey file is is pretty basic actually the further i went back and the more i started checking around people who lived around them as well the more details i was able to uh, piece together but i thought this would be an interesting case to throw in there because obviously i've i've laid the groundwork in there of uh oh, I got something in my eye ow uh, ow that's annoying ow 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 get out uh obviously this is a a slightly similar case to the baker's wife uh the alexander moyer episode so i've kind of laid the groundwork in there before and kind of set the seeds for you in there so you're kind of going you hear baker's wife and it's it's actually only one street over and the era's not too far away it's kind of um only about 16 years different uh and there's a lot of similarities going on with this story but i had fun writing it because what i wanted to do was i thought okay we've got these two stories and you know that with the baker's wife he's he beats her and beats her and beats her until she she's unconscious and then she dies it's a really horrific story but i thought this could be a little bit more fun not that this should be a fun story but play on your expectations of it that i'm kind of playing with the idea that he's a horrible man he's brutal he's horrible and you just keep thinking that you know i keep laying the groundwork that there's an axe and that he's a brutal man and he keeps beating her and you know but actually she does actually get um one over on him in the end and he ends up dead but she ends up saving her children but what a cost what a cost she ends up in prison she loses all of her children she dies in a workhouse her children survive uh did a little bit of research on that mary ann went off got married uh she did really so mary was the oldest one daniel did really well he died uh in his old age edward as mentioned died in his late 20s uh he was a porter in covent garden for quite a bit uh william the youngest one and john both still lived in london up until their 70s they both died in the 1930s uh so they 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 did quite well as well although the 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 two youngest ones didn't survive uh as was the mortality rate in the workhouse more than 90 percent especially if you're younger uh, under one your chance of survival is literally zero um but it was a nightmare to find marianne's details and granby place as well this was a pig this took me a couple of days which made me think oh god i'm i'm not gonna be able to do this episode even though i plan to do this uh if you're looking at your maps or phones now you're probably on google already as i'm talking and going granby place granby place what's michael talking about it's in lambeth it's in se1 it's not in se1 just so you know there is a granby place in se1 but it's not the granby place it's not this one uh and this is the problem is that granby place where they lived is on the national census it's briefly on the national census which is really annoying but it's not on any maps it's not on charles booth's poverty maps it's not on parish records it's not on street maps but it does exist because it's on the census 
Uh, and also, really annoyingly, it's listed under multiple names as well. So on the different sources I look at, uh, it, it's listed under Grampy Place, Gramby Place, Grambly Place. It's like multiple different references uh, which are incorrect. Uh, and because it's not on any maps, it was really difficult to try and track down where it was. I knew that it was off. Um, I knew that it was off uh, Drury Lane. So what I had to do to find it, I had to use all the statements that people had said, and uh, people said like uh, they went to the uh, the Wheatsheaf pub uh, on Veer Street. Uh, so I know where Veer Street, Veer Street still exists, and then you had uh, it's not South Street, not Southampton Street. Street I mentioned in there earlier on. Anyway, that's disappeared. I know where that is. I know where Kemble Street is because it's still there today. I know where Wild Street is because it's still there today. I know what direction they were walking. I know what direction they weren't walking because uh, there's lots of different references. Um, and then the people inside their different um, uh, witness statements, uh, I was able to narrow it down to one small block and uh so that was really useful that was really useful because drury lane can be quite 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 big obviously like the some of the uh witnesses said that they were uh, john Kay said that uh they lived just 300 feet from uh bow street police station uh it was off kemble street it was off drury lane so that really narrowed it down to me so uh yeah so i've narrowed it down to a block uh we can't narrow it down any more than that because basically it was slum housing it was it was under a name but it wasn't its official name granby place it looks like it was there for tax purposes or for census purposes but it it would never had an official street name so we know roughly where it is uh so that took me a couple of days to find that that was a real pig especially when you open up charles booth's poverty map and you go it's not there even though booth's poverty map is um booth's poverty map happened after the slum clearances of 1875 so that kind of all it said is uh uh dwellings and it's like oh don't you say dwellings what's the name of these streets but they'd all been demolished by that point uh so that was a real pig but finally we got there i it was one of those details i was like i have to have to solve this so um I used some of these in here, but uh, uh, I didn't feel that it warranted all of it in there. So these are... Oh, cup of tea. Lovely. Uh, I'm going to uh, read you some of... Th I'm going to read you Daniel's statement. So, Daniel Moriarty's statement. So, uh, two days before he died, when he was in King's College Hospital, which is just literally over the road, you've got Covent Garden, you've got the Strand, you've got the Kingsway uh, underpath underpass which is the old tram system it's just literally over the road it's literally three minute walk if that uh daniel moriarty was in hospital uh he'd had the bone removed from his brain he was in bed he was very lucid he was up and he was walking around um so it actually really did look like he was going to survive and he said uh, i lived at 13 granby place drury lane i was employed at haggerston gasworks Interestingly, he was employed at the same place as the abominable Mr. Cox from two episodes ago. Uh, on Saturday night, I returned home at seven o'clock. I then went to Twyman's house. Interestingly, Twyman, I didn't put this in the story, but Twyman is the lady he was having an affair with. Dirty little bugger. Uh, in Little Wild Street, which is just off Wild Street, obviously. Uh, my wife came after me. Uh, I was then quite sober. <clears throat> He loves saying that. Uh, my wife and I afterwards went to the Wheatsheaf Public House in Veer Street. We had some drink there. <coughs> there is references to um, Marianne drinking. I haven't put this in the story because it throws it slightly off. Uh, but uh, although some people would say... Uh, sometimes people would see her drunk. Uh, people would say, firstly, she would only drink with him. Uh, and that was kind of her way of keeping an eye on him. She never drank by herself. She was never kind of wandering the streets all pissed up. Uh, and if she did drink, it was usually to lessen the pain of the bruises in her body. Uh, he said, I had some whiskey. She had some also. We stopped there for about a quarter of an hour. And then we returned home. I did not go to bed when I got home. Uh, there was not a man and his wife in the room when I got back. Whatever that means. Uh, my wife and I did not quarrel. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were not, hang on, uh, she struck me with a small axe twice on the left-hand side of the head. It's actually six times. 
Uh, I went upstairs to a man. Uh, that must be John Kay, but we're, none of this makes sense because John Kay doesn't corroborate this. Uh, and he came with me to the hospital. That didn't happen. I did not fall down at all. He did. Uh, that is all I know about it. I am certain I did not strike my wife before she struck me. He did. Uh, I was sober. He was not. <laughs> Even when he was in hospital, Andrew Duncan, the hospital uh, surgeon, said he reeked of booze. Uh, and because he had so much booze in his system, that was like a, a, an anaesthetic. Not an anaesthetic, yeah, a pain reliever. Uh, the small axe my wife struck me with was in the room at the time. My wife uh, has not been living with me for three weeks. It was actually around nine to ten days. Uh, she went to another place. Yes, she went to another place. The workhouse. Uh, and did not come come to me for a fortnight. I have been married for 20 years and have six children by my wife. Eight. Uh, I have not been in the habit of ill-using her. Which, again, is bullshit because he was charged with a month with hard labour just a couple of months before uh, for ill-using her. Uh, it's amazing how selective his memory was. Uh I didn't put this in the story as well because it kind of slowed it down as well. But George Beale, the landlord and the manager of 13 Granby Place, uh, he lived just two doors down at number 11. Um, this throws off the timeline because I don't think the times are right. But a at a quarter to eight o'clock, to 7.45, um, uh, Marianne Moriarty came into my room very excited and trembling so that she sat down and then she told me she had hit Mr. Moriarty on the head with a chopper. They, throughout this, they use the word chopper or hatchet. I've used the word axe because everybody knows what an axe is. <laughs> Ooh, burps. Uh, I said, have you really hit him on the head with a chopper? She said, yes. I said, with the blade of it? She said, yes. I said, whereabouts? She said, I don't know, but I've hit him on the head and I think he is dying. I said, if he dies, you'll be, you will be in for it. That's another way of saying uh, in trouble. Uh, she said, no, I won't. I stood, I only stood in my own defence. Look at me, showing me some bruises on her arms and a lump on her cheekbone. I took a light and went to the house and saw Mr. Mariotti, Mr. Moriarty lying on the floor with a sheet around his head, held up by his own hands. That was before the police came. I sent, I sent for them and met them coming in. Uh, I did not see her any more uh, till she came to me. When she pointed to her arms, there were bruises there. This is uh, when he was being re-examined in the uh, in the trial. Uh, she pointed to a place on her cheekbone where it appears, appears as if it had been done recently. It was red and turning blue. Uh, it appeared to have been a violent blow. It was a goodish-sized lump. It was causing her face to swell. When taken away, I like this. I like this one. Uh, when taken away, uh, as you know, uh, Marianne Moriarty had already confessed to the police. She'd already said, uh, "I'm the one who, who had done it." Um, when she was being taken away by the police, uh, when she saw that Daniel Moriarty was still alive and that there was a chance that he may still survive, she shouted out, "When I come out, I will do it again." There we go. Uh, Marianne Moriarty was sent to the female convict prison in Woking in Surrey in Knapp Hill. Uh, interestingly, uh, uh, Woking prison uh, in Surrey was also the same place that Alexander Moyer, the um, the um, brutal baker, was sent to. Only he was sent to, obviously, the male part, not the female part, because they'd split it. Uh, that was closed in 1895. And it was the first purpose-built female convict prison. Opened in 1869. Uh, what else do we have? Yes. Oh, yeah. Have I used this? Let's use this. Prisoner's statement before the magistrate. Ah, yeah. This is um, Marianne Moriarty's statement in court. So... I've used bits of this, but not all of it. Uh, I've been his wife for 21 years and the mother of his eight children. See, she can get it right. Uh, I have been a very good mother. She has. Uh, but I am sorry to say that my husband behaved a very great brute and a very great drunkard to me. I had to take my children in my arms and go, go, in, and go in the street of a night from him. 
Uh, I've always been in and out of the workhouse with them. My husband turned me out and kept me in the streets. The last accident took place. Um, he was all the week drinking. So the week before the murder happened, he was boozing all week. As we know, he always boozes all week. Uh, and it and he left, and he left his work. Uh, he drew the last of his money on Wednesday and came home that evening drunk, and was in a very bad, bad temper. He asked for some dinner. I gave it to him. Uh, he seemed all evening in a very, very, very <coughs> in a very bad temper. I tried to amuse him all I could. Between five and six o'clock, a man named Dwyer, I think his name was Tom Dwyer, I believe, came and asked my husband to assist him with some potatoes into the cellar. I briefly mentioned this in uh, this episode. Uh, I may be editing it out. I don't know. My husband was sitting by the fire, drunk. He turned around to me and said, "What brought Dwyer up here?" I said, he came, to, he came for your assistance with some potatoes. My husband said, no, he did not. And he, said, and he said he came for a very bad purpose, implying sexual shenanigans, which is kind of ironic, given the fact that this is coming from Daniel Moriarty, who's a womanizer and uses prostitutes. A brothel botherer. Uh, many words passed between us, and he got up and beat me around the head. I cried out very loud, uh, but no one came to me. He kicked me with his bare feet, he then dressed himself and went went out. I went out afterwards and I went and told Dwyer uh, what my husband had said. I did not go into the room again except when my husband was out. He was all week this drunk up to Saturday. He was all the week drunk up to Saturday. Right. All week he was drunk up till Saturday. <sighs> Uh, he lay in bed with his clothes on. On the Sunday morning, he took a lamp and other things to sell. I took out this. There, there was references to pawn tickets. Uh, they were so broke that um, they were having to use pawn tickets to uh, make the money. But really, he, uh, Daniel was just using the pawn tickets to buy more booze. Uh, he did not come home till late. He got up early on the Monday morning. He said he would not come home till late. He came home in the evening between seven, uh, 6 and 7 o'clock and I left the room. I was with my children all day. He worked up until Friday night, so that's the night before, five days a week. He came home on the Friday night about 9 o'clock. I went out and a little afterwards my husband went to the public house. My third son, which we've mentioned here was Edward, I believe, uh, followed him there and asked him for some money for some bread, which we've put in the story. Uh, after that, my husband sent a child for, m for me for two pawn tickets, and I sent them to him. He went upstairs to oh, this is all about Kay's room. This is all about so we've this is this gets up to the point where he goes upstairs to John Kay's room. Uh, they're doing some boozing. Um, this, where's this bit? Uh, ooh. Uh, uh, the, the horrible man is washing his shitty boat. You know the horrible man I mentioned last time who, who has the lights on all night blinding us and uh, uses his little remote control boat to scare the ducks because he's a prick? He's washing his boat. But he doesn't go anywhere in his boat, which is really annoying. It just sits outside his house and he cleans it, but he doesn't go anywhere. Really pointless. Uh, <coughs> oh, excuse me. Um... Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, on the Saturday morning, I saw my husband washing himself in the room. Uh, he sent the boy for some coals. Uh, he gave me him no money for the bread. When my husband went out, I went up to the room. After that, uh, I went to look for my husband and found him in the yacht public house having rum and water. I went next to Twyman's, which is the the pub where the, the his fancy lady was in Wild Street, and there I saw him sitting down with the woman Twyman, as she called her. Uh, I asked him uh, if that was the way he was going to treat me. He laughed at me. He got up and took me to Callahan's, which was another pub. I haven't mentioned that in because I couldn't find out where Callahan's was. Six months ago, he took this woman up to my room and sent my children out. Naughty, naughty, shaggy, shaggy. Uh, after leaving Callahan's, Callahan's, we went home and my husband lay on the bed in his things. I sat down and went to sleep. When I woke, I've took this out as well because it kind of, uh, it doesn't make sense. When I, when I woke, it was dark. I went to the room where my husband was and he beat me around the head. 
I got from him. <coughs> I got from him and went to the Bow Street Police Station. This is we've put this all in the story and saw the inspector. Uh, interestingly, the the inspector um, when they quizzed the inspector, the inspector said that there was no reference or, or record of her turning up that day to go to Bow Street Police Station and making uh, a complaint against her husband. Uh, she went there and and said that. Uh, uh, to ask the police to send for her husband so they could uh, charge him, but the husband did, decided he didn't want to go. Uh, husband said, Daniel said, uh, have you been to Bow Street as usual? I'll give you cause to go there. He threw me uh, from the door towards the fender, which is part of the fire. The chopper was against the fender. He said, I'll do, I'll do for you now. He picked the chopper up. I threw myself on his arm and wrenched the chopper out of his hand. He dragged me towards the door. And I hit him twice on the head. I saw him bleeding and went to Mr. Beale's, <coughs> the deputy's place, that's uh, George Beale's. I gave my husband, uh, as I had given my husband, a month's imprisonment about eight months ago. There were more statements, but uh, this was just one that I thought I thought I hadn't used it much. So we'll throw that in there uh, so you can hear her voice. Right. Oh, dear. Tired, tired now. Barely even touched my cup of tea. Look at it, it's sitting there. Tea, cake. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna get this. I'm gonna go to Costa now. Oh, I'm gonna prep the next episode. Oh dear. And then hopefully, what have I got? Thursday today. I'm gonna try and write some of it today. I've got Friday. I've got Saturday. I've got tours on Sunday. So hopefully, I won't be able to do much Monday. And then hopefully, if I Hopefully I can record episode 72 on Tuesday morning before I go to my brother's. It's all go, isn't it? Right, that was Murder Mile episode 71. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Boat's about to go past. Man on his phone, not paying attention, but there we go. Uh, uh, Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, More episodes to come. It's all going well. We're we're not going off tangent. No one's one's threatened to sue me yet, uh, which is good, even if they do. I'm all hardened up now. Don't care. Bring it on. Bring it on, dickheads. I do my research. Uh, so uh, that's episode 72. Hope you enjoy it. And there'll be more episodes next week. Have yourself a good one. Tatty bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.